We have another incredible story today on Startups for the Rest of Us. In this episode, I chat with Patrick Campbell, the co-founder of ProfitWell, on how he and his co-founders bootstrapped it to a $200 million exit. And even if you've heard other interviews with him about this acquisition, I focused on questions that I had not heard answered elsewhere. I ask a lot of questions about the actual transaction, like what was the stock versus cash split? How long did you have to stick around? What was the revenue breakdown of consulting versus SaaS when you sold? As well as talking through his and his co-founder's thought process as they were deciding whether to sell. Before we dive into that, I try not to do this often, but if you feel like you've gotten value from this show, I have a favor to ask you. As you probably know, MicroConf is the in-person and online community and event series that is tied to startups for the rest of us. It launched out of this podcast. MicroConf was created by founders, for founders, and we are doing a survey to find out how we're meeting people's needs, how we're not, where we can improve, what we can do. We've done one of these maybe every three or four years at most. And we're just trying to make sure that everything we do with MicroConf, because we have a staff running events and community and mastermind matching and a YouTube channel, and we want to make sure that everything we do helps bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped founders meet, learn, launch, and grow. So we have this seven-minute questionnaire that will greatly help me and greatly help producer Xander and the rest of the MicroConf team. If you go to futureofmicroconf.com and complete that survey, Honestly, I would really appreciate it. Feel free to at mention me on Twitter if you want to let me know, and I will personally thank you for it, at Rob Walling. And when you complete the survey, you'll also be entered into a drawing for a free ticket to either MicroConf Europe or MicroConf US in 2023, and those are our flagship events. So again, if you feel like you've gotten value from this podcast, this would be a way to perhaps give a little value back. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Patrick Campbell, on his $200 million exit of ProfitWell. Patrick Campbell, thanks for joining me on the show, man. What's up, man? Good to see you. It is good to see you. It's been a while. This goatee is working. It's working. working? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen you with like this much facial hair in a long time. So I'm I'm excited for this. I accidentally grew it while we were on a camping trip and I came back and I did a live stream and people were like, this, this looks great. You should keep this forever. (laughs) It was only, and actually my wife, the only people didn't like it were my kids. Interesting. Sherry was like, you look better with it. And people like, it makes you look younger. How, how does facial hair make you look younger? Well, you know, it's really funny. So the reason I have a beard, you've known me when I didn't have a beard. I have, the reason I got a beard is because I got called out being too young in an exec, like not my exec team, but an exec meeting for a customer. And I was so like caught off guard that I was like, you know, insecurely was like, I'm just going to grow a beard now. And now that I'm getting older, I'm like, oh, I'm going to start being clean shaven just to like reverse back in the age. But I don't know, guys in facial hair, it's, it's a mystery. We'll, we'll have to talk to the beard brand crew if we ever, if we ever need to get down this rabbit hole. Indeed, indeed. So folks, I'm sure everyone's aware, you bootstrap profit well with co-founders, sold it for, I believe the numbers are 200 million or north of 200 million. I've seen differing you know, press releases. I see you as a future tiny seed investor. Um, there we go. <laughs> you like that? Aner already that, hit me up. Literally the day like, of the didn't... announcement, Aner <laughs> DMs me and I just went, come on, man, give me a couple of days. Give like, me yeah, a di- let the body see cold at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've spoken at MicroConf and frankly, 
I mean, your journey started with, with ProfitWell as a consulting agency, right, called Price Intelligently that you then built ProfitWell out of. So, which I think of as like stair-stepping or self-funding, right? It's like you have this engine that's generating money and use it to basically build a software product. Most people don't make that turn, right? There's a lot of dev shops and SEO shops and marketing shops that try to productize. It's very hard. So obviously you guys did something special. I'm curious, I have a bunch of questions that people have asked me and that I've been thinking about, about not only the acquisition itself, but the process of getting here. I think let's start at the end, right? It's a hero's journey of like, here you are, you got a big bank transfer on a certain date a few weeks ago. like An uncomfortable one. <laughs> yeah, to where it's like, whoa, I'm not just rich. Like I, I never, maybe generations of my family never have to work again, right? I mean, this is a lot of money, dude. So what, yeah. what does that feel like when you look at, you know, this huge sum with more commas than you've ever seen? Yeah, you know, what's really interesting about that. So I think I'm going to stay at the end, but a comment you made about like the we don't call it consulting we call it services we can get into that later if you want but i think there are a lot of times why a lot of dev shops end up not being able to get the product is you get hooked on the revenue and you personally get hooked on basically taking the money off the table and so to have like i would say either the courage or like the risk to basically say okay i'm making six figures right now i'm taking profits off the table doing really really well to say, all right, we're going to take that to zero next year, or we're going to slowly lower that revenue, even though I'm getting better and better at bringing that money in. It's a hard thing. And for us, the reason it worked well is, you know, we, we always were reinvesting all of the profit back into the business. And so to, to answer your, your actual question, without going too much on a tangent, I did the Dave Ramsey thing. We did the Dave Ramsey thing where we were like paying off our house aggressively. Um, and so we bought a house in, in Salt Lake City. So everything over an emergency fund was going to the house. So in January this year, I had, I think it was about $12,000 in our bank account. Just Jenny and I, and a paid off house. Like we were, we, we should have waited a little bit, but we were like, screw it. We don't have kids, don't have any like major emergencies, like companies in a good place. My paycheck's going to keep coming in. And so it was one of those things where it was like, it's pretty crazy to go from that to feeling essentially like you won the lottery. And I say it that way because, one, this is a very like champagne problem, privileged conversation. Like, don't worry, I recognize that for anyone listening. But I think one of the crazy things was is like you always as a founder, especially an indie or a, a kind of bootstrap founder, you always know that you're like going to get there. Like you, you kind of are always like, I'm going to fail or I'm going to get there. But then when you actually kind of catch the car, you're kind of like, oh, like what just happened? And that was kind of the feeling because I know I worked hard for it. I know the team worked hard for it, but it, it's hard not to feel like, you know, you've won the lottery. And I think that it's been, you know, a couple months since, you know, close. And what's been kind of crazy is I, I realized that, you know, having means essentially you are the same person and that's both amazing and also terrible because you think, oh, like once I have money, like I'll change this or I'll change that. And, you know, it's only been eight weeks, but it's like, oh no, like the things I'm bad at, I'm so much more bad at. The things I'm good at, like now I can like amplify those particular things, right? And so, yeah, I think that's like an initial impression or at least like an initial impression after a couple of weeks of being able to kind of sit on it. And the best advice I got was just to sit. I'm not like jumping into anything. Like I, t I think I told Anna, I was like, I'm, I'm sitting till like the end of the year probably. I'm just like, I don't even have any mutual funds. I have no index funds. I have nothing except some crypto. Um, so I'm just going to kind of sit on it and like, you know, come up with a thesis and a plan probably in 2023. Stuff is on sale right now, man. 
Yeah. I, I know, but I, still, I'm I just, envious. best advice, just yeah. like, you know, hang wait back, on. hang yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just wait yeah. a little bit. I think I, I hung on for about two or three months before I just had to start I just couldn't sit on cash. Like it was bothering me. You know, <laughs> I, you. I could sit on a, I could sit on a chunk of cash, but I started dollar cost averaging, or I should say, we Sherry and I started dollar cost averaging into some index funds, into crypto. This was 2016, so it was a good time to get into crypto, and an okay time to get into stocks. It wasn't amazing, but I was. I felt, oh my god, the market's overvalued. I can't. Why am I buying in? But you just have, you know, you have to do it. You just got a dollar cost average. Yeah, that's what we did. But you're at a great place in time, and you have you have a lot of money to move around. So yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Can you talk about the Split. I imagine it was a split of stock and cash. Can you talk publicly about that? What I can say publicly is about half and half. Yeah. So it was it was it was definitely a stock component, definitely a cash component. It's also one of the reasons we didn't talk about the final number publicly, just because like and I was talking to you before the pod uh, we were recording. It's like it's kind of weird like what you communicate, right? Because in some ways this is a bit of a merger, but it's an acquisition because obviously we're getting bought. And so, but it's like Faku's now running product. You know, I'm on the board, on the exec team. Like, you know, Peter is still running, you know, a big portion of sales. And it's, it's the way I've looked at it is we're kind of like moving to a larger vessel, which is cool, but with a company that has like a very, very unified mission with us, um, which is really cool. And, and I think that there's, there's probably like maybe three companies that we could have had this unified vision with at, at the detail that we have it. And so that's been kind of the cool part in terms of like why we wanted stock to be a good portion of the deal and stuff like that is just because now like I don't have an earnout, but like I intend to be here four or five years. You know, I intend to see this through IPO just because I think it's it's one of those things that, you know, I just I'm just excited. And that's a weird feeling too, because you know, I'm still working just as hard. And those of you who know me, you know like I work my butt off and you know it's just one of those things where I just I still love what I do, which is great. Yeah, it's a great place to be in. And so this deal north of two hundred million, have you talked at all about what revenue you were doing in total and then what percentage, because you had the services wing and, and the SaaS wing, like how the percentage broke down? Yeah, so not doing public with the revenue numbers. Um, it's just kind of interesting too, like again, what you choose to be public with. Like there's not like a huge incentive to be public, unfortunately. Um, and this there's a huge debate I always like, I tweet every so often of like, show me a company that's over 10 million that's like truly transparent, that's not public, right? Like it's very rare, right? And so as soon as we hit 10 million, so I can tell you we were over 10 million in revenue, we just kind of stopped like talking about it. I think I actually, I talked about it at MicroConf when we hit uh, 10 million. I remember. And that was the last time that I was like public actually, um, you know, with those numbers. And what, that was, that must've been 2017 or was it 19? I actually don't even remember. It might have been 18 or 19. And yeah. that was, was interesting is that was 10 million in like total revenue, mostly or partially of that was the services revenue at the time. And then every single quarter since then, the services revenue, it wasn't growing at like an exponential pace, but basically the, the MRR or pure software revenue was growing at a very, very like doubling kind of pace. And so we ended up at sales around 50-50 basically. And the reason, like our services revenue, the reason I quibble with the word consulting is that what we did, which I think a lot of like people who are trying to stair step in terms of consulting or service revenue should do, is one, it actually started off with software. It was a pure software product originally, like for the first six months of the business. We realized that like iterating on that product was gonna cost so much money just time. Um, so we started putting humans like myself basically to kind of like fill those gaps. And I think what ended up happening is like we basically defended our margin and then anything that we could fit within that margin 
essentially was was game. So we could grow the business, we could grow overhead, whatever it was, and we set the margin basically at 50%. So that business was doing, I think, north of 50%, not by much, um, but it was doing about 50% margin. And then our SaaS revenue was like 95% margin, something crazy like that. And so, yeah, that was that was one of those things where I think if you like can defend a margin and then grow within that margin, like keep going, I would argue with services revenue, as long as you can keep it as like its own separate unit, which is what we did. We had a price intelligently team, retain team, a revenue recognition team for our three different products. Um, and, you know, all one company, but kind of growing in parallel, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And what, what was your total team size? I think at exit, I'm trying to think of how many one-on-ones I had the day of the announcement, because <laughs> we announced it to the team and literally like, cool, we're going through, I think it was like 83 conversations just to like, here's your offer, here's all, everyone came on board. Um, I think we're about 90 now if you count kind of the pre-paddlers and then the whole company now is about 350. And so, yeah, good portion of the 350 is us, which is great. But I think we like aligned on culture so much that like it's been, it's been a smooth transition so far. Yeah, I'd heard you talk about that. I believe you had a conversation with Justin Jackson. I think I heard it there uh, where you dig more into the culture and how impressed you were with the the founder of Paddle and just how the two of you jived. Were you reinvesting most things back into the business then versus taking a lot of money out of it? So it sounds like it was it was highly profitable, but you were reinvesting a lot of it. Everything, everything. My average salary was $72,000 a year. I was making, I think, well, I can say I was making 150 at the end, you know, in terms of my annual salary. But like, yeah, it was, it was definitely like no profit sharing, nothing like that. Right, right. And so typically when you're reinvesting like that, you're doing it for an end goal of an exit, some yeah. type of liquidity, right? I mean, totally. Otherwise you'd pull money out as you go, you cash flow or whatever. So, so in your back of your mind, and I'd imagine did your co-founder, you and your co-founders, had you had conversations about we are growing this thing to exit at some point? Yeah. Yeah. So we... Our whole, and this is a a really important thing, and I've talked about it a lot, so forgive me if you've heard this from me before, but like, I think you need to align with your, I would argue not only your like co-founding team, but probably your exec team on like what the goal of whatever entity you're building is. You know, I think like ConvertKit, Nathan, like they're aligned on what they're doing. They're doing profit sharing, right? I think what we did is we wanted to build a very large company in in kind of a, a more traditional sense, right? Like Nathan wants to build a really large company, but they're building it in like a different way, right? And so I think that's a really important thing. So we would always check in. And frankly, that's what kicked off this process was we were checking in and we went, okay, like, do we want to go the profit sharing route? Because that's always an option because we're bootstrapped. The answer was no. Two other options were raising venture, like traditional venture for the first time, um, because we hadn't raised any capital before, or doing M&A. And we actually didn't even think about the M&A part until Christian started talking to us. And so it was one of those things where um, those were going to be those two paths. And yeah, so that's, that's, that's kind of the thought process that we had. And have you talked at all, or can you talk about the ownership split between you and your co-founders? I know there's there were like co-founders early, and then someone came in late, and everything. But you you have three? Do you have three co-founders? Yeah, it's really complicated. Actually, it's overly complicated. So I had these original like part time. I call them they're board advisors at this or board members and advisors at this point. They've been like that for years. I think all three of us, we had never started a company before. So I think we all kind of like, they were part-time, I was full-time, which is like, rarely does that work out. Like, because there's always like some consternation about like who's doing what and you have this cut, but you're not, you know, there's always just this like 
all these different surface areas for conflict. And we certainly had all those surface areas be, uh, be full of conflict. And so, so the folks I, I call like the co-founders, the people who were in the trenches the whole time are, are Peter Zotto, who runs sales and revenue, and then uh, Facundo, who runs our, our product, basically, in, in engineering. And so, yeah, and I, I'm probably not going to get into splits um, just because like, you know, it's not my story to tell um, in terms of these types of things. It's like yeah, personal, but, yeah. I, I do think it was really important, even though we were bootstrapped, I think just because I know a lot of the listeners of this show, for one, I think it's totally fine to do like a MailChimp or like a lot of small businesses where it's like the owner owns 100% of it, as long as you're super upfront with your team, right? And then if your team is hurt when you sell and there's no outcome for them, like, well, you were always upfront, right? Which I think is what MailChimp technically did. And there was a lot of like, armchair quarterbacks who are all like, oh yeah, you should have given more. It's like, no, 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 he, he overpaid and everyone kind of knew what was going on. Um, I think what we chose was a different route where every single person in the company had equity, like every single person who was there over their cliff basically got some sort of outcome. We accelerated everyone's vesting who was in the company at the time of the sale. So it's just one of those things where like, we kind of chose to, to, you know, spread things um, a lot, but I don't judge people who do the opposite. It just, it's, you know, you have multiple options when you're trying to build something. Right. And did I hear you say that you minted X number of millionaires or something, or was that, I don't know if you talked about that. What's that breakdown? Yeah, we, we minted, I got the numbers in front of me, 13 millionaires, 33 people made over 100K, 98 people over 10K, and then 124 people received some sort of consideration. Those were folks who were inside the business and obviously a lot of folks who had left the business since. Who had left, right, but they kept the equity, yeah. Yeah, of course. And what was kind of unique for us too is we did profit interests and, and kind of management interests, that type of a structure. So our team didn't have to pay any like anything to get their equity. So it wasn't like options where they had to like exercise them. It was one of those things where each year, because we were running all the profit back into the business, there were like no taxes. And so it wasn't one of those things where they had to pay taxes on it on a continual basis. And even if there was like the company took care of it. And so essentially like it was one of those things where they just like owned the equity. Um, and so that, that was another option where I think options are like, there's a reason they exist, but there's some trade-offs. And I think if you're in a bootstrap company, it's a huge selling point to be like, especially someone who's been burned on options. It's like, Hey, like, no, 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 you own these, like you own these outright. Like you don't have to like, or you have to vest them, but you don't have to like buy them and you'll get taxed on basically the liquidity event rather than like on anything else or any distributions, which we didn't end up doing. Yeah, there are a lot of different options, people, and I don't mean stock options. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to do this. There's profit sharing. There's, the, like you said, the MailChimp way, which I think was just more bonus oriented and just paying high salaries plus bonuses. There's true stock options. Then there's there's profit interest, RSUs. You know, there's there's a lot more than I think people commonly think about. And especially when you are bootstrapped, you have to think about it a little differently, you know, than just going the traditional traditional path. Did you ever consider taking funding? We had one point where I think, so in the early days, you get very enamored by the inbound because you're like, oh, I'm pretty. And you don't realize like, oh yeah, you're just on the other end of BDRs, basically these associates who are, you know, trying to hit you up. And then I think what, what's kind of interesting is like, you reach a point where you're like, I'm not going to talk to any of these people. And then that kind of makes them more excited. Uh, and so what ended up happening is a couple of years ago, we did get, like I, I got an intro because I respected the person doing the intro to someone, had a conversation with them, like just random coffee. They basically like 
through a term sheet in front of us. Within two meetings, we knew it wasn't going to like, we knew this was like just a game to get us off the, the sideline and it did work like mildly to get us off the sideline. Uh, but we never ran a formal process, anything like that. The way we funded the business was not only through all the profits, but in the early days, I cashed out my 401k. I was pretty young when I started the business. So it was like 14 grand. I think I had to pay like half of it to tax because, you know, they hit you pretty hard on that. And then basically um, lived in Boston on, you know, beans and rice basically for, for about nine months before I started paying myself a very small salary. And so, yeah, again, no kids, no mortgage, right? You know, these are all caveats. And then also like, no, like I didn't have any student debt, thankfully. So that was like a really, really big thing that I had some scholarships that, you know, basically wiped my debt out. I feel like bootstrapping is both simpler and more complicated than raising funding. For me, it's like simpler to run the business. There are fewer stakeholders, but it makes getting there I think a lot harder. Like one of my regrets is I didn't raise like half a million bucks with Trip because I was grinding for years. And I, I sorry, I'm interrupting you because I, I, I so agree because as soon as we knew that profitable was going to be free, and like the barrier to accuracy was going to be something that was actually really hard, we should have like we should have raised money, even if it was like a one to $2 million seed or, or, you know, small series A, like we should have done that immediately because it would have just, I think it would have knocked like two, three years off of the life cycle. And, you know, it's, it's just things you learn as like, this was my first business. And I think it's just things you learn as you keep going. And so wholeheartedly agree. I was doing a talk on how bootstrappers, like how bootstrappers should, if you did come across, suddenly you sign a big annual deal with a customer and you have a hundred grand in the bank. Or if you do take a small amount of funding or if you, whatever, if you suddenly have money, like here's how as a bootstrapper, I would think about spending it. And one of the things I said early on that I was like, this is crazy accurate, but in your personal life, money saves you hours, right? It saves you not having to drive to the store. It saves you paying someone to help you. But in your startup, in your business, money saves you years, which is exactly what you're saying is that having money gets you there faster. You think two to three years, I think, you know, similar, look, not that I was in any huge hurry, but I think it makes it an easier, a little bit of an easier path. You can hire more senior people there. You don't have to live on beans and rice and cash out your 401k. You know, there's. Well, I think the counter argument too, is that I don't know about you, but in the early days, if I think if I was able to convince people I was worthy of like a million dollar seed round or a $500,000 seed round, I would have wasted the money. That That's another thing too. So I think it's like, it's it's kind of like you pick your poison, right? Like, yeah, in hindsight, two to three years, like, will I ever do a bootstrap company again? It's not an easy yes. You know, even though I have all this knowledge, right? It's like, I don't know. Like the, the other thing that we, I don't think we talk enough about is I think that there's a massive trade-off in terms of network when it comes to bootstrapping, right? Now, Things like microconf, like this podcast, all like, you know, some of your, I don't know if you consider them competitors, so I'm not going to say them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right? Like they, they're, they're different. But I think that like a VC, even an angel, when you raise money from them, not all of them are great, but even the average ones, if not the good ones, they're incentivized to make you successful. So you get invited to the events, you get invited to the retreats, you get invited to all of these things. And it's kind of like a reactionary thing that you have to do. Whereas like with microconf and these types of things, you kind of have to like choose to go, choose to look at the content. And there's obviously so much content now that it's easier to like get that funnel going. But I think that's a thing that like, it can be very, very lonely as like a founder in general. And I think you're even more alone as a bootstrap founder if you don't actively choose to like build your network. And so the best advice I got was, 
actually someone told me never to go to events, work on your product. The best advice I got was that's stupid advice. You should go to every single event unless you like have a built-in network. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that doesn't make sense, but let me see what happens. And then the network just paid back tenfold, which is great. Right. And I want to be clear, like I'm certainly not saying funding is greater than greater than bootstrapping. I, there are just trade-offs that I don't think bootstrappers a lot of bootstrappers don't think about it. They think about the freedom or the simplicity side, but folks don't consider. And that's where like this podcast has been for bootstrapped and mostly bootstrap founders, right? That's kind of how I say it these days because I realized probably 2013-ish, it was right around the time customer.io raised their round. And I said, whoa, they're funded now. Because to me, it was bootstrapped or funded. But they're like, yeah, we raised a quarter million. We're not going to raise again. And I was like, wait, what? You can do that? Like, and he called it fund strapping, which I don't call it. But I was like, this is intriguing. And that became, that was where I started thinking like, so funding for bootstrappers, this could be a thing. Well, and I like what you've done with Tiny and what you know, NDVC, which is no more. And, you know, even some of these rev-based financing products and these types of things, because I think what it does is it helps with like, where in my opinion, funding probably shouldn't exist, right? Like I think there are amazing angel funds, there's amazing angels out there, but like there's a lot of crappy ones, right? Like especially in Europe, like if you're if you're a European founder listening to this, you've probably dealt with like, great, that person put in $30,000 and they have 30% of my company, two board seats. This makes no sense from a US perspective, right? And so yeah, I think that's I, I think the evolution's been really interesting, but I I'm probably not the best person to go deep on it. This week's sponsor is Kelsis. Kelsis provides engineering teams for startup success, and they stick with their clients for the long term. Kelsis has worked with clients through nine acquisitions, and every time their work has passed due diligence and security audits by big audit firms and public companies. Working with Kelsis starts with a half-hour walkthrough call where you tell them about your startup, and after that, they usually begin a three-week fixed-bid discovery project. Go to kelsus.com slash startup to schedule your walkthrough call. That's K-E-L-S-U-S dot com slash startup. Well, very cool, man. It's funny, I, I asked just a couple of founders I know, like, hey, what questions do you have for Patrick? And I have this huge list. We'll, we'll never get through them all, but I do want to cover a couple more. Someone asked, how many months did it take from the first contact with Paddle until it closed? So... Months. Yeah, way too long. So I think I was talking to a founder yesterday and he sold to a PE firm whose whole shtick is they close in 10 days. And I was like, holy cow. And he's like, yeah, they actually, because now he's working with this PE firm to do like a roll up. And he's like, yeah, that's our thing is we close in 10 days. Um, I don't know about you. I did not close in 10 days. Um, <laughs> we went from conversations in October, November, we kicked off a process through early January, signed a term sheet. We had a number of options to sign. That was a 12-hour day of just ourselves, um, the 10 top people at ProfitWell, like sitting in a room all day. We actually, I think this was kind of a unique way to do it. So we, we basically, Faku, myself, who were kind of the main people involved in like the deals and things like that, we presented the options we walked away and like let the team debate it for a couple hours. Then we came back and just, we said, whatever you choose, we're going to fight the opposite. And that kind of helped, you know, challenge. And we went through that, those 12 hours signed, um, Jan 15 and then diligence contract negotiation paddle had to raise money to fund the deal. 
And so it was one of those things where literally January 20-something, the markets start to tumble. War in Ukraine starts to kick off. So all this stuff's happening. Thankfully, um, one of the advantages of going with like KKR for the fundraise was that they've been investing since like the 70s or 80s. And so they've kind of seen everything. So like they weren't phased. There were other funds that they've only been around for eight to 10 years. And so they were like, oh my God, you know, freaking out with kind of a, a downturn or potential downturn that's happened. And so we closed, signed April 8th. We did a split sign and close, cleaned up a bunch of stuff, had everyone sign stuff. And then we closed like two weeks after that, basically. And then the best thing, if anyone goes through this, even if it's like an aqua hire or something, we all then went to London for the all company summit. So within weeks, everyone was together, profitable folks, paddle folks. I would say even if you're like a small team, even if you're like a couple people, like go to the HQ, go to wherever your team's going to be and go there for a couple weeks. I stayed for about a month and a half just to like, you know, be in the office and stuff like that. They have a remote culture, but it was still like good for the people who came to the office. But yeah, it was, it was a long timeline. It was extremely stressful. If I didn't respond to your email or your tweets or something during that time, that's why, because it was like every single day was a, like a new fire, but like not a, it would be all existential. It'd be like, oh crap, there's this thing. Oh, are they asking this because it's bad? Are they asking this because it's a problem? Oh no, they're just asking. Great. So you had these constant emotional resonance because I had never been through this before. And I had a couple of Sherpas, you know, help me out. Some people had gone through deals, but it was, it was still really tough just because it was, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. It's always longer than you want it to be. It's always more stressful. No matter how many times you hear that it's really stressful from people who've gone through it. I don't think I was, certainly was not prepared for the level of pressure and anxiety that I endured, lack of sleep, all the things. Every day I woke up and I was like, well, today's the day it all falls apart. <laughs> that's what I kept saying. Well, and that's the thing too. Even if everyone, like let's say the money, like they have the money, which that was not necessarily the, the thing for us. Let's say they have the money. Even then, it's like this lawyer, there were 86 lawyers. So it's like this lawyer for their thing is saying that this is wrong. Well, is business person over there going to go, well, that's we're now over the scales because they're going to find bad stuff, like just how it works because they either think of things differently or like you didn't clean this stuff up because why would you? Like you're, you're not a venture-backed company. You don't need to clean some of this stuff up, right? And so that was that was definitely a nerve-wracking thing. And now that I've gone through it, I'm like, great, I want to do this more because now I like, you know, I went through all the, the, the tinglies, you know, already. So now I can, you know, do better. But yeah, it's interesting. Well, I also think you hit a point, like everything since then for me, I don't want to speak for you, but everything since then for me has been way easier, both because even though like now with Tiny Seed, we're dealing with tens of millions of dollars, we're doing these events, like it should be, and we've had stuff go well and some stuff not go well. COVID hit microconf, like that was devastating. I have gone through more actual should be stressful moments since selling drip. And I'm like Zen. I'm like a stoic. And I think there's a couple things with that. One, when the volumes turned up to 11 for four to eight months, it sounds like it was eight months for you. I think you just have to adapt at a certain point or you crumble. And then I think the other thing is for me, having money in the bank, I'm always like, yep, worst case, I'll still be okay. Like there's a certain level of comfort that I think We've never experienced in our lives if you grew up working class, whatever, if you didn't grow up with money, you know? So first, I think building a business and sticking with it is like the best self-help program ever. Like, I don't know about you, I don't want to speak for you, but thinking of like my emotional maturity when I started the business to my emotional maturity now, it's it's insane. Like I wouldn't have gotten it without 
starting a company and getting kicked in the face every day for years, right? But I think the other thing is like, that's that's something that's interesting about like know thyself as a founder and know thyself of what you want because this stuff sucks, right? And if you push and you're resilient, like on the other end, there might not be like a pot of gold, unfortunately, right? But there is going to be like, holy cow, like I learned so much and your emotional resonance on so many things just comes down, right? And it's kind of funny you say that. And I know this sounds like a very champagne problem about the sleeping or you didn't say sleeping better at night, but like, okay, I'm going to be okay, you know, with cash in the bank. But like, this is also why like, I don't think you should have should do what we did. I think you should take money out of the business. Like you should schedule it. Like you should literally like once we hit this milestone, I'm going to, you know, take the next X thousand dollars out of the business or I'm going to do this. I'm going to schedule this raise. Like there was years where I was making 50 grand a year and we shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. Like I just shouldn't have done it because what was happening is as we got closer to this point, my risk aversion was going out of control because all of a sudden I was like, I have a paid off house, but I have 15 grand in the bank, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's a very different feeling. Paid off house felt great, but also like, yes, we have a bootstrap business, but you get into your own head and I think you should take money off the table. And that might be a justification to raise around at some point as well. It's just to take some money off the table and, you know, go from there as well. Right. That is absolutely something that I think founders should consider once they're north of, eh, let's say, a million and a half, two million ARR, is secondary rounds are not, I mean, right now the valuations are not amazing because of the market, but like historically- Wait six months if you can. Yeah. Yeah. Wait six months. We've we've started talking to a few founders through the Tiny Seat Syndicate who want to raise secondary. And we're like, yeah, this is, it's, it's a nice opportunity, I think. I totally agree. I remember back when Rand Fishkin was running Moz and he tweeted, we are about to raise another round. And they're doing, I think they were doing 35 million ARR, right? And he says, my assets are, it's typical Rand, super, you know, super transparent. And he's like, I have $10,000 in the bank, a rented apartment and a car. And he's like, should I take secondary? I feel guilty doing it. And everyone's like, are you serious, bro? Like take 250 grand, take half a million, just take some number. It's crazy. It is. The guilt... The guilt is so weird. It's so weird. I mean, I grew up poor, working class. Like, I had a union dad. So, like, everything having to do with corporations and like management was evil, right? Like, and so this ironic career I have, right? And it was just, it was fascinating because even thinking about secondary, even thinking about profit distributions, even thinking about a raise, like, we had to put it into the plan. And that's why I suggest that because every time we'd come up to it, we'd be like, ah, maybe, maybe we should just hire that next salesperson or that next engineer. And even now, like, I was talking to you before the call, like we exited, but because I'm intending to be there for a long time and a lot of the team is as well, it's like, it feels kind of dirty. Like I, I genuinely feel like, oh, can I, can I like tweet about money? Can I tweet that I'm at the St. Regis for vacation now? Like, can I do those types of things? And I don't know, I'm, I'm getting warmer to it because I think that like, you know, it's, it's just reality. You got to live your truth and show people you're not an asshole. But like, even since the announcement, like there's some people treating me weird. Like there's, there's, there's this vendor that I love and we're great. But now that this is exited, like we hung out and he's like, he's treating me as I would imagine you. And he's like saying some weird stuff. And I was like, dude, it's just same me, same me, which is like such a weird concept. And I've already been hit up by family for money, which is kind of crazy. Not in a gross way. It wasn't in a gross way, but like they probably wouldn't have done it unless this happened, you know? And again, it was, it was a very well-intentioned way, but now there's all these like interesting things you have to deal with. That is a trip. That happened to me too, actually. Someone pretty close to me and my family hit me up for money right after. And I was like, wow, this is so weird. Like this is, this doesn't feel good. When I told Jenny, I was like, Hey, like we should just make a philosophy 
Because like, if we agree we're not going to do it, it's easy enough just to be like, well, we, you know, we've decided unless like there always be a room for you, food, whatever you need, right? And it wasn't because of like someone being destitute or, or anything like that. It was more of an opportunity-based thing. And in terms of like investing, like in family and stuff, it was like very, okay, well, we have to see this person at Christmas. And even if we're fine, we don't want them to be weird, right? So maybe we, uh, and so like we're still in the middle of talking about it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of wild. So as you said, it's a champagne problem, but it is still an issue that you have to deal with. Yeah, 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 totally. I want to ask you a couple questions about Paddle. You're now part of Paddle, which is payment processing, right? I think of them as as being in the space of, you didn't name competitors, so I, I like don't want to name your competitors, but I mean, come on, we know who the payment processors are in, in our space. It. Stripe and Braintree are who I would think about. How do you think about competing with Stripe specifically? Like it feels like everyone likes them. You know, they ship a lot. They're high quality, right? I mean, <laughs> Wait, Stripe's got a great brand? What are you talking about? Yeah. So to take a step back and this gets into some finickiness about definitions, Paddle is not a payment processor. Paddle is payment infrastructure. And I know that's like, what the hell does that mean? So basically the way to kind of think about it is, let me think, think of a metaphor here. Okay. So Stripe creates the roads and Stripe also creates the trucks and logistics through like Stripe billing, right? So Stripe has the roads, they have billing with the, with the trucks, right? The thing though is like Stripe's truck is really good up until a certain point, like probably a million in ARR. Some people go well beyond that, but there's a reason and, and you know, I can say this from a data perspective, everyone's going to think I'm biased now, but like we saw this in the data beforehand. You can find me talking about it before the acquisition or before we even talked to, to Paddle, but right around a million ARR, we would always get hit up by people from ProfitWell and be like, hey, you know, we're outgrowing Stripe, we want some of this, like, who should we go to? And we would send them this article that has like 21 different subscription management systems on it. Uh, recurrently charge be the, the whole gambit, right? And so the way to kind of think about the metaphor is like, Paddle is not just the truck, but kind of like the logistics network. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're a founder and you're selling a particular product, and you want to start selling in Eastern Europe or Western Europe or Venezuela or Brazil or whatever it is, what Paddle does is it stitches together all of that infrastructure so that you just have one interface. They handle all of the taxes. They handle everything. So that's the difference really is like you plug it in and what people don't realize is that like we're a customer of Stripe. We're one of Stripe's top 200 customers, Paddle. We're a customer of Checkout.com. We're a customer of, you know, Adyen. We're a customer of a bunch of these different payment processors. But what we do is we sit on top of that. We basically route the payments to whoever has the best payment acceptance, whoever has the best for that particular country because Stripe's not as great in Brazil as some of the other ones are, et cetera. And then what's kind of cool is because it's called a merchant of record, basically all of the different payments go through Paddle. So they handle the taxes. So essentially you don't have to pay a tax bill for your sales. Those taxes are just kind of taken care of. And so it's a little bit more nuanced. Like I think of it as like a middle layer rather than an infrastructure product. And this is kind of what fits in the thesis is like Paddle does it for you when it comes to taxes, currencies, those types of things. And ProfitWell was very geared towards like, we do it for you when it comes to retention. We do half of it for you when it comes to pricing. Like, how can we continue this kind of do it for it metaphor or do it for you mission of we run and grow your business, basically. And so the vision is, is like, when you plug Paddle in, 
like a dollar that goes in should be worth a lot more on the way out just by the nature of using the software. And so that's kind of how we think about it, if that makes sense. So it's a little bit more nuanced, like, is there crossover with Stripe? Absolutely. Is there crossover with ChargeBeat? Yeah. But we have customers who use all of these things, right? Because it's a little bit of a different nuanced space um, in the stack, if that makes sense. It does. And especially as you get larger, these things get more complicated and tracking metrics and paying sales tax. I mean, I, yeah, sales that we, you know, every other week in Tiny Seed, there's a question about either that or like if you're a UK limited company, because we have an EU fund now, should I be thinking about paying sales tax in the US? And then there's US companies saying like, well, what is France going to do? Come after me? You know, there's all that. And then there's the that is a whole other different story. But yeah, I get the the nuance. And I think I now understand more about Paddle than I did because I, I had assumed they were much more similar to, you know, a competitor to Stripe. I think they get compared to Stripe in the indie community a lot because if you're a European company, you go typically with Paddle because you know how complicated the tax stuff is. If you're U.S., you're just starting in the U.S. and you don't really realize when you start sending in Europe and you get a letter, you know, like a tax letter and you're like, wait, what? Like, you know, you get that kind of reaction. I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting because this do-it-for-you concept, I think, is where most software is going to go, like, in the next, like, couple of decades. Like, not with AI and everything like that. I just think the U.X. is getting, like, to the stack in the right place, like the priority stack. And so... Like, for example, like, I didn't realize this before even talking to Paddle that, like, if there's an issue, like, let's say, like, something goes wrong with Prague has its own tax authority inside the Czech Republic, inside the state that Prague's in, like, it's just so complicated. If there's a problem there, you don't get the letter, Paddle gets the letter, which is kind of interesting. And so there's, like, a whole team of risk and a whole team of, like, lawyers at Paddle that just handles this stuff, like, for you. And I didn't... I, I didn't even realize that because most of our sales are in the U.S. and things like that. So it's just kind of fascinating like how complicated this problem is. And I think that Paddle has suffered from that too because it's a little bit of a black box and people look at like Stripe, they're like 2.9%, Paddle 5%. And they're like, oh, they're the same thing. You know, why is it more expensive? And it's like, well, it's more expensive because Paddle goes to jail. You don't go to jail, <laughs> like, right? They're handling all this stuff. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, PEO, the first time I heard of that for hiring, right? It's like they are the the organization of record or something. I don't even remember what the term is, but like your employees are actually employees of that PEO and therefore you can get group health insurance and then they handle a bunch of compliance. I think it's a similar, I don't want to compare it directly to that because P, you know, all the PEOs suck. And we, yeah, we've, yeah. It's uh, a little more complicated. Yeah, but that's that's what it is when you get into this this stuff. I know you have a hard stop in two minutes, so I just want to ask you one last question. I know you moved to uh, Puerto Rico. And is it true that if you live there enough days during the year, you can backdate your residency to the beginning of the year and then you can avoid, I'm assuming, income tax or yeah, <laughs> long-term cap gains? on? So, uh, yes, I moved to Puerto Rico. Being a Midwesterner who grew up poor, I am very embarrassed to talk about this, but I think it is important. Yeah, so it is, it is a tax haven. And there was a couple things. First, would I be in Puerto Rico without the tax incentive? Probably not. Jenny and I were looking at potentially going to essentially a, a, like a warmer place because we had always lived in like Boston or Utah. So like colder places or typically colder places. And so we wanted to kind of consider somewhere it was warmer. And so we started kind of as this deal was going, we're like, well, paddles remote might be the opportunity to go for it. That type of a thing. Heard about Act 60. That's what it's called. And so we came here and th the first thing I'll say is like, 
every single person who has come here solely for the tax benefit ends up leaving. Every single person I meet that's leaving, there's a lot of, um, they're not really expats because it is the U.S., but there's a lot of people who end up leaving or like, like we got this apartment from a group of uh, two people who were leaving. And I was like, oh, you're, you're leaving before the requirements. They're like, yeah, we just, it, they were only here for taxes, right? So we came here and we were like, okay, taxes, it's not nothing, but could we live here? Like, could we see ourselves here? Like, you know, we're going to have kids soon, like all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it checked all the boxes and we're like, yeah, and there's the tax incentive. And so, yeah, long story short, to answer your question, I am going to be paying taxes. Don't worry. I'm going to be paying a significant tax bill. You know, it's, it's not like I'm going to zero or anything like that. But yeah, you get long-term cap gains for the value of the equity while you're here. So there was a value before I moved here. Then there was a sale that increased the value while I was here. So there was, you know, there's some of that that's going to be tax-free. And then my stock going forward will theoretically be tax-free if I um, meet the requirements, which the first year is tough. It's 183 days. And I realized in starting to count my days, I was never in a place for 183 days, uh, you know, previously. But yeah, and it's there's some other requirements. You have to like buy a property and there's some donation requirements and stuff like that. I will say like if you are considering this at all, and there is another portion of this that if you have a um, basically a service uh, business or even like a software business, there is another tax um, act that basically you get 4% income tax and you know there's some other incentives to it. What I will say is like talk to a lot of lawyers, feel free to contact me because the first lawyer I talked to, like everything was yes. Every question I asked, well, what about this? And he was just trying to get through and get his five grand basically to file because it is a lot more complicated than you think. And you're probably going to end up paying taxes if you're going through a sale. It's not like a home run, but it is very advantageous for, for folks who are founders and stuff like that. Well, sir, thanks again so much for coming on the show. And on tax, tax havens. And that's, on that's taxes. Well, and on, you know, I think if a bootstrapper has, or anyone selling a company hasn't heard of it and it becomes intriguing, I think it's nice to, to spread the love. Totally. You are at Paticus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S on Twitter. You are the, now the CSO of Paddle. I already changed that's it. That's pretty cool. Ch -ch I saw that. Twitter, yeah. yeah, and it says formerly profit well. Chief so. strategy officer. As as Matt from Summit says, it is the black card of executive roles, apparently. It so really is. It's like the ball. I have no direct reports. I gave up my last direct report last week. It's crazy. And everyone, if you're early in your business, you're like, why would you ever want that? It's like, well, just keep managing, just keep managing people. Further along <laughs> it's you hard. get. It's yep. hard. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's really hard. So Awesome, brother. I appreciate you, man. I will say to end, the MicroConf community and you personally have just been so huge and teaching me so much. And so just thanks for doing all that. Cause like, I don't, you know, would I be here without it? I don't know, but I definitely, it would have, it would have been a harder path. So I appreciate you, man. I appreciate all the stuff you do. Thanks so much, man. Really, really do appreciate it. It's quite a story. And it's a real testament to bootstrapping that someone can build a company and exit at this level, I've ceased being surprised by these exits. You see MailChimp's $12 billion. There are many bootstrapped companies and mostly bootstrapped companies that are having these seven and eight and nine figure exits. And as I said, it's a real testament to the capital efficiency of being able to grow a company like this without having to raise massive amounts of funding. And it's a testament of the subscription model of SaaS. You know, I, I call it the, the cheat code, the business cheat code that we get for free because recurring revenue is so incredibly powerful and it's so valuable as a driver of enterprise value. So thanks again for joining me this week. 
This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 611. I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning.